following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Why on earth are we even here? Um, seriously, though. Um, this is church, and it's Sunday, so I guess that's what we do, but why? Just because it's Sunday? Um, maybe? But this, this is a topic for our, um, uh, the, as we're going through our statement of faith, this is a topic for this morning. So I'm going to read um, this, what, from the statement of faith on the church. It says that we believe the church is Christ's symbolic body in the earth, and that it should reveal his character, his message, and his love to the world. We believe that the church is to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. This will lead people to have fellowship with God and community with others. So from this statement, we, we see two things being explained. One, what is a church? And then the other part is, what does it do? Um, so the what does it do part, we'll talk about that next week. Um, but today, I wanted to talk about what is the church? Where does the idea come from? Um, it is kind of weird. It's a strange thing that we do. Um, some people think of it as, or have thought of it as a country club that you get to go to once you're a Christian. Um, that sounds odd, but I've been places where they act that way. Um, is it a perk? Like, you know, Sam's Club, you know, you get to go if you've got a membership. Um, maybe. Uh, is it a requirement, a tradition, a fun activity, a gathering, a way that we earn something, we get points? Or um, how does this work and why? You know, it's worth spending a minute to think about. I, I like studying doctrine. I like studying theology. And this is one doctrine that I'd never really spent a whole lot of time. I mean, covered it briefly, but never spent a whole lot of time thinking about. And I was, when this topic came up, I was thinking, what passages would I go to to kind of establish this idea? And, and there's a few that came to mind, but, but it wasn't really a kind of a robust um, presentation or whatever. So it was fun to look into this to, to get the whole picture. Um, so when I was a kid, we got to learn, I mean, we still get this now, but we, I got to learn some clever sayings back then. For one, I learned that being in the church, this might be helpful, pay attention here, I said on the slides. If you're in the church, you're not a Christian. Kind of like being in a car, in a garage, I screwed it up. Being in a garage doesn't make you a car. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's how it works. If you're in a garage, you're not a car automatically. Um, just like if you're in the church, you're not automatically a Christian. And I don't know that people still think that. I mean, I suppose there's people who come out of duty thinking they earn something. Um, but it's a good reminder, I suppose, that being here doesn't by itself make you a Christian. Um, hopefully, even if you're an unbeliever and you come, you will learn some good things, some helpful things. You'll get to learn or get to know some people, and that will be good. Um, there'll, be, there'll be decent people to know, I suppose. But if you don't place your trust in Christ while you are going to a church, you've missed the whole point. Um, the church service is for believers. We are here, those, those of us who are believers, are here as part of the process of becoming more like Christ. If you're checking things out here, that's awesome. Ask questions and press in. That's what believers are supposed to, to help you with, is answer these questions for you. But if you're here for a long time and you're not a believer, the Bible says there's danger there. And we talked about that a while ago, and I won't press it anymore now, but if you want to talk about it after, we certainly can. Um, we also like to point out another clever thing, that the building isn't the church. We are, as people. It's not this, the brick and mortar and, and drywall and everything else. And this is true, um, but it also seemed a little overstated to me because, um, I mean, the building isn't what the Bible talks about. 
when it uses the word church. But man, having a building is convenient. Um, it is cold outside right now. I'm glad we are inside. Uh, and it's nice if you want to invite people to be able to tell them an address and they can find us. So it's good. We, we have a church building, and it is a building set aside primarily for the purpose of housing our church gathering. But certainly the church is about much more than that. But still, in saying that it's about the people, um, I think we gave an unintended message in some cases. I remember the point being made, church isn't here, it's you take the church with you when you leave. Um, and I get what they're wanting to say, but I think in fixing this building problem, we've made a new one. The new problem I think we've created is we've made people think that they are the church, so they don't need to come to the building. Does that make sense? You get to take the church with you, so awesome. We, why bother coming here on Sunday? Um, I believe in saying that we individually are the church. We've accidentally devalued the assembly. So the English word church doesn't actually come from the Bible's word for church. The word church in the English language is our version of what the, the Germans or the Scots would pronounce kirk. So if you see kirk, K-I-R-K, or with an E sometimes, that means the Lord's house. So we switched it out for CHs, and that's our word. Um, but the, the word in the Bible that's translated as church is ecclesia. And so have you ever heard the word ecclesiastical or ecclesiology? Um, these come from the same Greek word. Ecclesia means to be called out, to be called from, to be called to. It's a, a calling. Um, the church was called out and from the world, and it was called to follow Christ. Uh, the definition and the role of the church was a huge dispute in the Reformation. Catholic doctrine at the time said that people would receive God's forgiveness through the ministrations of the church body, and they had a very defined organization of the church. And so in their view, the church was a body with the authority to grant and to deny access to God. You get to him through the church. The reformers said that's backwards. It's completely upside down. No man, according to the Bible, stands between us and Christ. So because the church is the called out ones, salvation actually makes us part of the church assembly. So to put it another way, no church body controls the access to salvation, but rather, salvation is the point of access for joining the church. Um, and so I think it's worth looking at how this works. Part of what happens when we're saved is um, what's called adoption. So after we respond in faith to Christ's call and place our trust in him, um, we've, we respond in faith and repent, and we're justified by Christ's work on the cross. And, and then we are adopted into his family. So what is it to be adopted? Adopted by whom? And into what? And for what? What is this adoption? Biblically speaking, we are adopted by God. Peter, in his first letter, says to believers, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So God adopts us. Paul says this too a number of different ways. He said, we are joined into the body of Christ. Kind of odd language if you're not familiar with, with it, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, he, Paul also speaks of us being grafted in. Uh, Peter says, those who are not God's people become God's people. But God's family is not a birth family. It's a family that's assembled by God. The Holy Spirit calls, the Son saves, and the Father accepts. This is what is meant by adoption. And this family we're adopted into is called the church. 
And this community was not, God, or was not man's idea, it was God's idea. It came from him. So when Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, he's saying that we went from having no status straight to having this, the highest possible status. Not only did we go from not being people to being people, meaning a, a group of people with an identity, we went straight to being the people of God. And that status isn't an individual status. So we're definitely saved individually, but we're saved for a purpose. We're saved in order to make us his people. And on salvation, upon salvation, his, or our identification becomes part of a group. And you, you see these, uh, some of these names through scripture. The people of God, the body of Christ, branches grafted into the vine, shoots grafted into the olive tree, the family of God, the house of God, his field, foreigners who are now citizens, distant ones who are now brought close, the flock who needed to be gathered together. And even more pointedly, he calls us, Jesus calls us his bride, who is to be married to himself, who was the groom. So all these metaphors bring different aspects of the relationship to mind, but what they do not suggest is separation. This language all speaks of a tight community that knows and loves one another because of the proximity and frequent gatherings of the church. So, so Paul calls the church a body, the body of Christ, and it is a body in a very real sense, not in a figurative sense, like a corporation. I thought this was kind of an interesting um, comparison here. A, a corporation is a legal fiction. I have a, a company, and my business is a corporation. So for taxes, legal purposes, and all that, it's a name on paper that defines whatever it is we are. It's just an idea written down, but the law treats the company, this corporation, as if it were a person. It's a legal fiction. It's not, it's not really a person. There's a bunch of people in my company, and if somebody hires us, they hire the company, but they get everybody. They get the whole package, but they refer to it as one thing. Um, so for legal purposes, we essentially pretend that it's a person, that a corporation is a person that can act uphold contracts, fulfill obligations, uh, and be, be held responsible for things. But, as I said, a corporation is just a fictional being. We just pretend it exists. The body of Christ is not a corporation, but it has corporality. They both come from the same root word. Corpus is Latin for body. The word corporation means to assume or like, to pretend to have a body, to treat as if something had a body. But corporality means having a body. The church is what a corporation pretends to be. It is a body. You might think of other related words from that corpus root. Um, we may talk about the corporate gathering or corporate worship. This just means gatherings or worship that is done by individuals assembled together into one body. The language is inescapable in scripture. Like a legal corporation, the church is comprised of parts. The difference is the church forms a real thing, the body of Christ. It's not a pretend entity. It's an actual body. And this is just it's foundational teaching in Scripture. When we talk about uh, corporations or bodies, we often talk about the parts as being members. So your limbs are members of your body. Uh, you get, there's a member here and a member there. The body of Christ is spoken of as having members. Um, and I know this can bring up some uncomfortable reactions depending on your church history, and I'm not getting off into the whole idea of membership. But the idea that we are members of the body is undeniable. It's just a fact. 
Um, what we do with that and how we interpret that is a different matter, but we are members of the body. Um, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he mentions Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. He mentions all these names. Say hi to them, you know, smack them up for me, whatever. These are all these people that help me. He knows them. And we see the same in his other letters. The church that he writes to, these letters were, look in the New Testament, the, uh, the beginning of almost every letter says, to the church at. They're directed to a specific group of specific people. But it wasn't some ambiguous, amorphous, corporate group that, that didn't have a face. It was a group, but he knew who he was writing to. Um, he, in, in some of his letters, he mentions a couple of women who are fighting. He said, you know, stop it. Uh, he mentions men who are raising problems uh, through their false teachings and disturbing the congregation. Uh, he knew by name who was generous and people who had helped him. Uh, he thanked people and re responded to people. In, in other words, the church was a collective body. He spoke to them as a group when he wrote, but it was made up of specific identifiable members. He knew who they were. The inverse of this is true as well. Not only is the church described in the Bible as being made up of individual Christians, but individual Christians are always said to be part of a church. There is nowhere in scripture the idea of a Lone Ranger Christian. There are no families who stay home and call themselves a church. There are no people who identify with the body of Christ, but who are not also part of committed corporate gatherings. There's no example of a person in scripture who chooses to go it alone in his faith. The whole, it's just me and Jesus thing, I guess, I don't know, I was gonna say it's a nice idea, I don't know if it is, um, but it's not a biblical principle. Um, but these days, I know countless people who use this reasoning, but the uncomfortable reality is that they have strayed from the biblical description of what life in Christ is. And honestly, the early church would have been boggled to hear that there were people, that would be people, who would claim to be in Christ, but would not be part of his body. It doesn't make sense. If you're to see a severed hand on the sidewalk, and this is part of why I don't have slides this morning, um, <laughs> but if you were to see a severed hand on the sidewalk because it needed to find itself, would you think that was a good idea? Uh, would you expect clippings from a houseplant to flourish on the kitchen floor? If you knew a person who was married, um, it, yet they were choosing to live estranged from their spouse, would you think this is the picture of a healthy marriage? I wanna recommend this to people. Uh, you pick the biblical analogy of the church. Separation from that thing is an alien and destructive idea. It's just the picture that we see in, in Scripture. You can't be in Christ and not in his body. It just doesn't make any biblical sense. Uh, so I want to look at uh, the biblical definition of church to help give us a framework for our thoughts and discussions. So when I mentioned thinking about what does the Bible have to say about the church, the first thing that usually comes to mind is Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And, and Jesus says to Peter um, that you're right, Peter, and he calls him the rock, that's his name. And, and then he says, on this, meaning his confession, not him or not the rock, but the idea is his confession that you are the Christ, on this, the entire church will be built. This is the foundation of what we will build the church on. In other words, trust in Jesus is what would identify people as the called out ones, uh, the ecclesia. But this was not new language. 
people in that age, Greeks and Romans, would have been familiar with the ecclesia as a gathering, a, a, not political, a public gathering, could be political, I suppose, but a public gathering. If somebody puts a, a note on the board, we're going to get together to discuss. There's going to be a disputation. We're going to discuss this or announce some new uh, zoning law or whatever, and people would come out to hear. That, people in that era would have known ecclesia, but for Jews, it had way more history than that. In Exodus, God tells Moses to approach Pharaoh, pretty bold here, um, just some guy is going to go tell Pharaoh to let all these millions of slaves free, um, set the Israelites free. We remember that scripture, let my people go. Um, but he says more than that. Um, he, God repeats this command a number of times, over and over and over, um, to Moses and to Pharaoh. And each time he gives, he gives more detail than the first time. What he eventually says is, let my people go so that they may come worship me on the mountain. So there's a purpose. It's specifically about going. And this let my people go, what he was saying, he was calling them out. These people are not pharaohs. They are mine. They're not going to serve you. They're to serve me. So let them go. So letting them go wasn't the purpose, although it was a good thing. The purpose was they need to come and worship me. And for that to happen, you need to let them go. So let them go. So the Jews knew about Ecclesia. The first one was calling his people from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And when these people get there, when all the Jews gather around the mountain, they gathered around to hear what God had to say through Moses. God would speak to Moses. He told him a lot of stuff, eventually giving him not only the Ten Commandments, but he came down with eventually how they built the tabernacle and rules for kings, which is an odd thing because there was no such thing as kings. But he gave them all sorts of laws for then and for the future, how they were to live their lives. Um, so the first thing that happened when they gathered is God spoke. Today we do the same thing. We gather together primarily to receive God's word. We also respond in worship and prayer, and that's a very close second. But this is what the church service is about. We are the ecclesia today. When God gives us his word, he is serving us in a manner of speaking. And I don't mean this in the health and wealth sense, like we come to him and just tell him what we want and he gives it to us. He's not a, a genie who does our bidding. Um, he doesn't serve us according to our wants. He serves us according to our needs. And we need him of all things. So when we gather, we gather in the service of the word. We gather to hear from him. And actually, that's where the word service originally comes from, is from God serving us. He serves himself to his people. That comes to take a new meaning uh, in the upper room. Jesus said that at the communion table, he himself would be served to his disciples. His followers would take him and eat him, um, fit, uh, metaphorically speaking, that Jesus is served to us at the communion table. And in fact, God is always serving us. He is always the first to act in everything. Think about other things Scripture says about um, the relationship between us and God. No one comes to him unless the Father first draws him. We love because he first loved us. We respond in faith because Christ first sacrificed himself for us. So why should we think church is any different? God initiates and we respond. That's the pattern. So too in church, God gathers us together, primarily to serve us with his word, and we respond corporately with grateful hearts in worship. This is what the church service has always been. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus gives authority to this body of called out ones. And it's an interesting note here. When Jesus says, uh, he, he tells them what to do if a person does not repent 
when they are brought to the church. So he establishes this body as an authority for settling disputes within the body. Don't go to court. Settle these things yourselves. But what he says is, if the church itself speaks on a matter, he doesn't say kick them out of the church. He says treat them as an unbeliever, which is kind of the same thing. But if you think about it, the reason he's saying that is because believers are part of the church. He doesn't say kick them out of your assembly and let them go live their Christianity elsewhere. He's saying their lack of submission to the church is a good indication that they're not believers. And that's worth some serious thought. Um, Luke, going on, he, Luke ends his first book with Jesus instructing the disciples to stay in Jerusalem. His second book, Acts, Luke part two, begins with the account of the Holy Spirit coming to live within the assembled believers. In this account, we see a pattern the gospel is preached, people come to faith in Christ, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're baptized, and they assemble as a group, which we call church. There's your pattern. Uh, after that, we see this group, this, the church, gathering to hear the word, to worship, and to serve one another. Um, but this isn't a unique thing. This becomes the model that Luke records Peter and Paul and all the other disciples doing throughout the book of Acts. Everywhere they go, they do these things through what we now call the church age. So we see these people uh, go to a new area, they call unbelievers to repentance, they baptize them, they build a church, they appoint elders to oversee it. Uh, we even see Paul give instructions in two of his books at least on how to set up these churches. Here's how they're to operate, how the governing positions within the church are to, are to work. Uh, he says what constitutes proper qualifications for each of these people to serve, and on and on. The church is central to the life of the believer. Um, <clears throat> so we've seen the idea that um, called out ones was an ancient concept that the Jews would have well understood and that Greeks and Romans would have a good idea of as well. From the entire witness of the New Testament, we see that following Christ makes us new people. Paul says that we are new people because we are each made a new creature in Christ. Peter takes another approach and says, once we were not a people, but now we are. So by placing our trust in Jesus, we become new individuals with new hearts, and simultaneously we become part of a new collective with a new allegiance. Now, um, Jesus talked about his believers abiding, abiding in the vine. He spoke of himself as the true vine, and believers as the branches that, that flowed out, sprouted out from him, essentially. Um, they were connected to him because he was the head, the originator, and the source of their nourishment. True believers remained healthy attachments, but false believers would be pruned away. Pruned away from what? From Christ in his telling. And later, Paul would clarify, pruned away from the church. It's the same thing because Christ, or I'm sorry, the, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. They're just using different word pictures. Paul wrote extensively about the body of Christ. He says that we are one body because we partake of his body in communion. He spends an entire chapter explaining that in the same way our own body has parts, um, the church too has parts. And his point here is profound. Though we are a unified corporate being, our individual identity is not lost. There are parts of our bodies that might not seem as glamorous as others, but just because your face is seen by more people and hopefully is more presentable than, say, your appendix, uh, doesn't mean that it's any that your appendix is invaluable or has no no value or no um, no purpose. Each member of your body plays a vital role. 
Likewise, each member of Christ's body plays a vital role. And it related to that, he mentioned spiritual gifts. And he says these are abilities or ways of serving that are given to each member within the body. And there's a passing verse that's easy to just read right by, but it's important here in connecting these two things that Paul's talking about. He says these gifts are given for the common good. What he's saying is they're given for the church. When you're given gifts of the Spirit, they are to serve the body of Christ, the other members of the church. The body of Christ is a collection of individuals and they're to serve one another with their gifts. Just as there's no biblical concept of believers without a church, there's no concept of gifts of the Spirit apart from the church. So this gets us back to the question I started with. If being a Christian joins me to the church, weren't they right when they said we took the church with us when we left the Sunday gathering? In a manner of speaking, yeah, but that's not quite right, I don't think. We each take the message of the church with us, certainly. Um, we share the witness of the church, but we are not each individually the church per se. So here, because I hear a lot of people saying they really would like to have more like logic lessons and explanations of things like that, that's usually what I hear is the most interesting thing on a Sunday. Um, I'll give you one. Something called the whole two-part fallacy. So for those of you who can see this, is that a car? This is not a car. Is this a car? And I built this. Um, <coughs> I, this is part of why you have kids, um, is to, to pass on your Legos and to buy more because you get lots more Legos. In these Legos, a car is made from bricks. Without bricks, there can be no car, right? I need them to make it. However, it doesn't work the other way around. This is not a car. This is a Lego. We put it together and it builds a car. Similarly, the church is comprised of individual believers. Without believers, there is no church. But each believer by himself is not the church. Does that make sense? Um, some will likely object that this sounds like legalism. Um, it's not, and I'll tell you why. It, legalism is when we take an issue of lesser importance or of some personal conviction that may be valid for individuals and set it up as a requirement for all believers. Um, if I were to say Christians may not dance or you can't play euchre or that you have to be circumcised or you name the list that's happened throughout church history that people have said has to happen in order to first before you can become a believer, that's legalism because the Bible doesn't say those things are required to be a believer. Um, however, if we take something that is important, that is part of core teaching of Scripture, that's not legalism. Um, so we're talking about things that are biblical requirements, things that are not lesser importance. And we've looked at a number of examples that show the importance of this doctrine. Now, you certainly could get into legalism if we were to take attendance every Sunday or place value on people because of how often they come. Um, and this isn't really a caricature. I've, I've seen this firsthand. Uh, it does happen. But I don't know anyone here who's interested in that. Um, here, we are interested in helping one another to flourish as human beings who are all striving after God. Uh, the author of Hebrews warns against falling into the habit of skipping. There's no suggestion that a, a perfect record is mandatory. In fact, if you're sick, and especially if you're contagious, please do not come. <laughs> 
by staying home, you care for yourself and you love your neighbor um, by not infecting them. And if you're traveling, I don't see any mandate that you have to go to church when you travel. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But I'll tell you, there is a blessing if you find a church that you're able to attend, if you're, to attend if you're able, while you're traveling even. And that's one of the wonderful things about the family of God that you don't see elsewhere. You can drop in anywhere because we're all family. You can stop at another church, you can be visiting family uh, in another, another state, whatever, and go to church and fit right in because we're all believers in Christ. Uh, what if it's more frequent? What if my job keeps me away from church? Um, I'm not, I'm not any, any authority here, but the Bible is. It does say, don't forsake gathering together. In simple language, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't skip church, even though there's a lot of people who have that habit. Um, and this is not a comfortable thing to say because I know many people in many different situations. Uh, and this is not to come down on anyone personally because I, there's no point in that. Even privately, if I were to say what the scripture says that I think is clear, it doesn't mean that I dislike someone or that I'm angry with them about it. We're just talking about what does scripture say. Um, so uh, I, I suppose I could also tell people about my decisions, but these aren't binding on anyone but my family. Um, I grew up with the understanding if the doors are open, we're going to be there. Um, and some people are like that, some weren't. It's, it's just whatever. We, we went Sunday morning. There's church Sunday night when I was a kid. There's church in the middle of the week. Um, there'd be father and son breakfast. There'd be work bees. There were stuff all the time. And of course we would go. Why would we not go? Uh, I'm not suggesting those things are all mandatory. But man, as I've grown up, I've come to appreciate all of those things. Game night, small groups, you name it. These are not all the same thing, but man, when the body gets together and gets to know one another and is gathered in Christ's name, um, it's, it's a blessing no matter what the gathering is. Um, however, the corporate gathering that happens on a Sunday morning here, our Sunday morning service, um, that is something at least... As for me and my house, if I want to use that language, this is something I can't imagine missing. Um, my, my kids know that this is something you don't even ask. Are we going to church today? This is a silly question. Um, are you getting out of bed today? I mean, yes, we're going to church today. Uh, when it comes to the Sunday morning service, if we see it the way that I'm suggesting Scripture talks about it, this is the opportunity God has given us to meet with our fellow laborers, our brothers and sisters in the faith, and to hear from God. What possible reason would I have to miss that? Why would I not want to go? The creator of the universe is holding open court because he wants to speak to us and he wants to be heard by us. I want to be there. I, I can't imagine missing. Um, we plan our week around that, and, as well as these other gatherings I'm talking about because it's just, for us, it is worth it. So here's my bottom line on that issue. I, I would not recommend a career or a sport or anything else that would regularly take you out of the Sunday service. Not that I'm saying it's a law, but I would encourage you strongly because I can tell you of countless stories of shipwrecked lives and broken families that might have had a different outcome had they ordered their priorities differently. Uh, I've been there myself, so I get it. I have had, I love sleeping in, and there are not many opportunities when you can do that if you have a job during the week um, and you do your shopping Saturday, and then Sunday comes, and doggone, we could sleep. Um, and I just start thinking about that for a minute. Sorry, I went, went somewhere else. But uh, I understand the appeal. Um, I enjoy that. Um, I've had to work on Sundays before, too. 
But each time I've done that, especially way back in my life when I would, just because of getting into the habit, when I would fall into the habit of not going to church, um, I would say that my priorities were God first, but I could, if you looked at my calendar, you would see something different. So I've been on both sides, and I'm here to say that I wouldn't go back, having experienced it both ways. If there's church on Sunday, I plan on being here because life works out differently um, depending on that. It's a, it's a key part of life in Christ. Uh, I realize there are plenty of other circumstances. What about the disabled, permanently homebound for various reasons, others who have legitimate and unavoidable reasons that keep them from coming? So if you are legitimately homebound or for whatever reason you cannot come, None of this is intended as guilt, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't bring guilt. There are always people in the body that need to be accommodated for various things. That's why we have people in the body that visit um, members who are unable to come or in the hospital who are at home. That's part of the reason we record and live stream the service for people who can't be here for whatever reason. But we have the word exception for a reason. The reason is because we know that it's not normal. The normal Christian life is, involves attending church, being part of the body. Um, there are exceptions, and if you're an exception, our hearts are with you and you should have no guilt. But if you're not an exception, think about it. So what about people who say they go to church online? Um, I'm here to tell you this is not church. Uh, can't I hear from his word when I'm on my own in the woods? Sure you can. Um, can't we worship God or cleaning the house? Sure, uh, but I'm fed with sermon podcasts and, and books and things like that. Awesome, I, I get that too. These are all wonderful, but these are not the church. These are terrible examples, but uh, I could love my wife from wherever I was traveling in the world, but if I never see her, is that the same thing? Um, I could take responsibility for my kids and get them into the right schools and make sure they go to youth group and get them interviews for all the right jobs and take care of all these things in their lives, but if I never roll around on the floor with them and play or take them to do things or spend time with them? Is that the same thing? Like I said, these are horrible analogies, but hopefully you understand the point. There's something different about corporately gathering, being part of, a, um, of corporality, of the body of Christ. All those things are good. S private study, you should. Privately reading the Bible, absolutely. God wants to speak to you more than for 30, just 30 minutes um, uh, one day of the week. Uh, worship, prayer, all these things should happen routinely, but don't think that through any of this you're outsourcing church. Um, we, we know that we are the body, and we know whether our circumstances are avoidable or not. We know we shouldn't forsake the assembly as the habit of some, as it says in Hebrews. We know we belong in community. Uh, you don't need guilt from me, and I don't want to give guilt. But if there is truth here today that you need to hear, then I want you to be uncomfortable. That's how it works. I hope it digs in and festers. Uh, because that is how the Holy Spirit makes us better. This is life in Christ. This is part of life in the body. And that's what we're talking about next week, is you know, festering and things like that. Other, other stuff too, but. Um, sometimes this digging and festering and encouragement and lots of other things Sometimes it comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it comes directly from the Holy Spirit through you people. And that's why we come to church. Well, it's part of why we come to church. Uh, God is everywhere. There is no question. You can 
find him wherever you are. There's no place where he's inaccessible or of which he is unaware. However, he has always instructed his people to come out and to assemble before him. There are a number of reasons for this, not the least of which is receiving God's service. To remove ourselves from the church body and the gathering of the church is to separate ourselves from the primary means of grace that God has instituted. This is why it's crucial to come to church. Uh, And with that, I will dismiss you with the following words that Paul wrote to the Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.